It's exciting to be here this morning. Um, my name is Jeff, like, like Chris said. I know most of you, uh, some of you maybe not, but my family and I have been coming to South Spring. We've been members here for about five years. Um, we can track it back to a certain date because our first Sunday here was the last Sunday that we had one service. So the next Sunday started two services, and this church has been such an immense blessing for our family over the past five years through the programs, through the staff, through the people, through you all. So uh, we really do love it here. And it's fun to be able to be up here and open the word with you guys. Um, I've, I've spoken quite a bit, uh, different places, time to time. I don't think I've ever done back-to-back services like this. It's kind of weird. Like, hey, I'm about to do this again. Um, so hopefully I worked out all the kinks in the first service. Uh, Tucker, my 10-year-old, came up right in between services when he got here, and he's like, Dad, how'd it go? And I was like, oh, I think it went pretty good. He's like, did anybody fall asleep? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So uh, keeping my eyes on Matthew Peer. So, um, you know, but... Um, it is fun to be here. Um, you know, like I said, we've been here for five years, which I think most of that we've been in John, right? Um, how many of y'all have been coming to South Spring two years or less? Raise your hand. So y'all really think like that's all we teach here is, is John. And people say, what church do you go to? It's like, oh, we go to South Spring. You know that church that teaches John? It's like, oh yeah, I've heard about that church. Um, I, in preparing for this morning, I went back and watched and listened to a lot of the videos that are online, which I highly recommend doing. It's so great to be able to go back and watch those. And I was watching Jared Schuler on, um, he was walking us through John 18 <clears throat> and kind of the beginning of John 18. And at the beginning of his message, he was talking about kind of how long we've been in John. And he said, we're now in the final stretch uh, of John. And that was September 1st. So... <laughs> So now we're kind of really, really in the, the final stretch of John, um, and it is exciting to, to be able to walk through this. Uh, in case you were wondering, we actually started John on February 4th, 2018, so um, it's been almost two years, and it has been so, so good uh, for me, for my family, hopefully it has been for you. It reminds me, when I was in college at A&M, our pastor at the church I went through, we took about three years going through Romans. And thankfully, that was only about half the time I was in college. But um, it, it was so great. And now when I'm in Romans now, I still go back and think about that and um, taking that time to go through that in depth. And hopefully that's what it's going to be like for us and the, the gospel of John, that we've really taken the time to walk through this and, and really dig in and see the truth that is in his word. So thankful for that. A little recap of where we are. Um, Jesus was crucified. He was dead and buried three days prior at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, he's resurrected. He appears to Mary. Mary mistakes him for the gardener. Um, Jesus tells her who he is. He reveals himself to her. He says, hey, Mary, go tell the disciples. She goes and she tells them and she says, I have seen the Lord. Then at that point, we're not really sure you know, what, what Jesus does, but that was, that was Sunday morning. But then Sunday night, we see the disciples are together, they're in the room, and Chris talked about this a couple weeks ago, and the doors were locked, and then all of a sudden Jesus is there, he says to them, peace be with you, and then he breathes the Holy Spirit upon them, and this kind of brings us to verse 24, where we are today, and 
this morning. Uh, this last section of, Je- of Ch- John chapter 20 really focuses in on Thomas. And in a lot of ways, this passage that we're going to look at today is kind of the climax of the book of John, um, which is just so great. Uh, when we hear about the disciple Thomas, most of us have one word that comes to mind. Uh, what word is that? Great. I'm glad you said that. If you said something random, I would have like totally thrown off everything. But yeah, it's doubt, um, <clears throat> which I think in some ways is kind of unfortunate. Thomas has kind of gotten a bad rap um, when he's associated only with doubt. But in other ways, I think it's an incredible gift because I do think that there's an aspect of doubt that can drive us to find truth and to know Jesus more. And we'll see that a little bit this morning. Um, for most of us, doubt has a negative connotation. It's not horrible, um, but it's usually not positive. And in some circles where legalism or fear are kind of the primary motivators in a church you may have grown up in, doubt actually equals sin, which is totally not the case. But I think we can grow up in a situation and we feel so bad when there is doubt and doesn't necessarily need to be that way. Um, <clears throat> as I was praying through and preparing for this morning and talking about doubt, my wife reminded me of one of my more epic um, episodes of doubt, I guess, and it involves pregnancy tests, right? So um, 14 years ago or so, something like that, we've been married about a year, and uh, we found out that we might be pregnant. So there's certain signs that are there like, hey, we might be pregnant, we should go get a pregnancy test. So Jenny goes to Family Dollar and she buys a pregnancy test, and she comes home, Take the pregnancy test, it's positive. So we're super excited, of course. But in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to tell anybody. Like, this costs $2.50 at Family Dollar. Like, we're, we're not going to tell people. This is huge. Like, if this is true, like, so let's go buy another pregnancy test. And this time we're getting it at Walmart, not Family Dollar. Because <laughs> big difference, right? And so none of that discount stuff. So we went to Walmart, got another one, came home, is positive. And Jenny's like, babe, they're like 98% accurate. Like we can trust them still. And then, okay, can we tell people? I'm just going, okay, we just, we took this test that like you go in the bathroom at home for 30 seconds and you get this, that doesn't seem right. So we need to go to the doctor, which obviously we're going to go to the doctor anyway, but we finally go to the doctor once again, positive. Yes, we're pregnant. Um, And the doctor thought I was pretty silly for not trusting the, the first, however many Uh, we did. Um, And then we were pretty excited. But I think part of it is my doubt was there because if this was true, the implications were huge. This this is life-changing. Like, okay, we don't have any kids. We're about to to have a kid. So you would think now, um, you know, our next child, Landry, comes along. We're pregnant with Landry. And, you know, we take a pregnancy test. And I'm like, okay, great. No, same thing. Like, okay, we're going to go by. I think that woman may have taken three or four I don't know. It's just the implications were huge. And then I think with Tucker and Molly, it was like, yeah, this is probably right. So, um, but, you know, I think it brings us to chapter 20 because I think part of the reason Thomas's doubt was there and part of the reason it's kind of called out is the implications are huge. If what the disciples are telling Thomas is true, then all that he's learned from Jesus these past three years, all that he's heard from him And and now they're saying he's been resurrected. We've seen him. These implications are huge. And that was hard on Thomas. So let's look at chapter 20, verse 24 through 31. It's going to be up on the screen, but y'all stand with me as I read this passage. And then we'll dive in. 
John chapter 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You can be seated. So what do we know about Thomas? Not a lot, actually. We know a little bit more than some of the disciples and quite a bit less than some other disciples that are talked about in the gospel. Um, His name means twin. It's a Greek translation of the Aramaic word for twin. And so in some of your translations, depending on what you have, it'll say Thomas the twin, or it may say Thomas named Didymus, which really, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of translations that will talk about his name. Thomas means twin, and then he's called the twin. So he really didn't have a name, but it's kind of like, hey, his name's twin the twin. It's like, poor guy, um, depending on where he was. But um, The Bible doesn't specifically say who his twin was. He's mentioned eight times in the New Testament, four times. It's kind of in the list of the the disciples, Jesus picking his apostles. uh, He's in that list. And obviously, as one of the disciples, Thomas spent a lot of time with Jesus. I mean, he was was close to Jesus. He spent about three years witnessing his miracles, hearing his teaching. He appears a few different times in the Gospels, but it's only here in John that we hear him speak and we get a little bit of insight into his life and and his personality. Way back in John 11, 5 through 16, we see the account of Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead and Jesus is now about to go back, but he waits for a couple days and he's talking with his disciples and he's thinking, okay, I'm going to go back there. And his disciples want to point out exactly what he's saying and, you know, they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you were going there again. So they're bringing up the fact like, hey, this isn't the safest thing in the world, Jesus. But, but you're saying you want to go back where we potentially are going to get stoned. And they're discussing this. And then Thomas is the one that speaks up and he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Um, there was some bravery there with Thomas. And then in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And in verse 3, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And at this point, he's talking to his disciples, and I'm kind of picturing the disciples. They're all kind of looking at each other, and a lot of them are thinking what Thomas is thinking. It's just they're not speaking up. Thomas is the one that finally speaks up, and he's like, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
there was some boldness there for Thomas. And, and he was quick to kind of say what he was thinking. And, and even in that moment, there was some doubt there, but he was okay vocalizing that. And now here in chapter 20, verses 24 and 25, Thomas wasn't there when, he, when Jesus came to the disciples the first time. And, and Chris talked about that a couple weeks ago. And we don't really know why he wasn't there. Uh, we don't know where he was. Um, he was obviously hurting and grieving, and the crucifixion was heavy on him. And a lot of times that pain and that despair can lead us to isolation. And I don't want to read too much into the text, but I think it's kind of a safe bet that he was just kind of wallowing in his hurt and his pain and his isolation. And sometimes it kind of feels good to be there, even though we know that's not where we want to be. And, and maybe that's where Thomas was. And um, you know, most commentaries will point to Thomas's absence as a missed blessing, um, which it definitely was. <clears throat> Community is such an important aspect of healing, but a lot of times it's something that we go to great lengths to avoid. Uh, when there's healing that needs to happen, we kind of know that community is probably a good way to get through that, but we, we don't really want that at first. It's like, eh, I just kind of want to be by myself. So, uh, maybe that's, that's the plan. Some commentaries actually point to this passage as um, an encouragement for church attendance. I don't really think that's what John was, was trying for here, but um, it's like, really? Like you would say, like, hey, you're gonna, you need to be in church. You know, Thomas missed, and you don't want to do that. I don't think that's what John was going for. Um, the point is, we don't know why, where he was, why he wasn't there. But the other disciples find him, and they tell him what happened. And imagine how this conversation went. You have the disciples as a group. They're going to find Thomas. We don't know where he was. It doesn't say, but they're going. And as they're walking, they're probably like, okay, who's going to tell him? Like, are you going to tell him? I, I'm not going to tell him. You tell him. I'm not going to, he's not going to believe me anyway. Like, who's going to tell him? Then finally, Peter probably is the one that says, okay, I'll tell him. And, and he goes and he says, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And this is one of those places in scripture where I wish I had more info here because you kind of have two ends of the spectrum here. You have Thomas who's kind of sitting in his doom and gloom. And then you have the disciples who have this joy because they had just seen the Lord <clears throat> and they're coming together. And the disciples are telling them, we have seen Jesus. And you can see Thomas just going, okay, hang on. Now tell me again what you think you saw. Could you realize that's crazy, Right. They're like, no, really, we, and he kind of is like going back and forth, like, okay, I, no, that's not the case. And finally, Thomas had enough, and he says, look, guys, unless I see his nail-scarred hands and put my hands in his side, I am not going to believe. When he says, I'm not going to believe, in the Greek there, it's the strongest language for disbelief that is there. He's basically saying, in no way will I believe it's not just like, eh, I don't know about that. I mean, he is adamant here. In no way am I going to believe. And a lot of times this is where we find ourselves when we're in that pain and in that doubt. We kind of have our feet dug in wanting to believe, but, but we just can't. We need evidence. And the crazy thing is Thomas had evidence. Eyewitness evidence is pretty strong, especially eyewitness evidence from people that you had a relationship with. You've spent time with them. There's some trust built up there. That evidence should have been enough for Thomas, but it wasn't. He really needed more. And here's where things really kind of get personal, and I love it, that God does not leave us in our despair. 
God doesn't leave us in our doom and our gloom. And God didn't leave Thomas in his despair. Verse 26 says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Chris talked a couple weeks ago about his friend, the Navy SEAL, that kind of had the knack of just showing up. And we're kind of picturing Jesus wasn't there and then he's there. And my mind, I think, for whatever reason, went to a little more immature route. And I pictured um, at home, um, allegedly, I will hide in our house places and try to scare my wife or, or my kids. And <clears throat> um, I know, real mature. But... <laughs> Just the other day, I think it was actually this week, Jenny's in the kitchen, and um, she wasn't looking, so I get in the pantry, and the pa- our pantry is not big, and so I'm like in the pantry, standing there, thinking she's about to come to the pantry, so this is going to be awesome. Like 30 seconds go by, nothing, and I hear the kids like walk by the pantry, I'm like, okay, like I'll scare them, and they don't open the door. It's like two minutes go by, and then like three minutes, and then finally I'm like, I'm not just going to stay in here. And it's totally silent, so I just open the door and just walk out. And Jenny kind of looks at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> it was totally anticlimactic. And so um, anyway, but you know, that's not what's happening here. Jesus doesn't show up to, to scare the disciples. I mean, he, he is there. He wasn't there. And then he's there. And, and the great thing is he's there for Thomas. They are there with the doors locked. They were still living in some kind of fear because of what just had just happened. But they're kind of in their safe place. They're together again. This time Thomas is with them. And Jesus came back and he says, peace be with you. You know, a couple weeks ago, Tom, or Chris talked about the, the importance of that peace be with you. And although it was kind of a common cultural greeting, it brought on a lot more meaning, meaning in this setting here. And I think in this case, it actually becomes really personal because what I'm picturing here is as Jesus walks in and he sees Thomas and he says, peace be with you, Thomas. Now the text doesn't say, the text says he says, peace be with you. But have you been in that situation where, yeah, I'm talking to everyone, but really my eyes are focused on you. Maybe that's what's happening here. Jesus is looking at Thomas and he's saying, peace, be with you. I think that Thomas knew what was happening. The other disciples in the room had been there a week prior. This meeting was for Thomas. Have you ever been in that situation in a room where the tensions kind of get high between two people and everyone else in the room just kind of end up being spectators and, you know, people are talking back and forth and, you know, the disciples are going, oh, what's he going to say? Oh, my gosh. And they go back and forth. And I think that Thomas kind of gets called out because Jesus knew what Thomas's doubts were. He knew even the request that was there. In verse 27, it says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So a couple things kind of stand out to me here. The first is, why does Jesus have scars? 
that always kind of intrigued me. You know, he, he was just resurrected. You would think he'd have like the new model, right? Um, and, but he's there, and I think those scars are there for a purpose. Was, was it just for Thomas? I think Jesus kind of shows his wounds as a badge of identity. He is our Savior, our risen Lord who conquered death. And he also entered the depths of our pain and our sin. And he was showing the disciples what that cost. Those scars are there for a purpose. The risen Christ has scars and being raised from the dead didn't erase those. I can't help but think how much of that is for me as well. It's my sin that put those scars there. It's, it's me, and that's a reminder. Isaiah 53, verse 5, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's through those wounds that there's healing. And that's what Jesus was showing the disciples. The second thing that kind of stands out is his words to Thomas were a direct response to Thomas's request. It kind of feels like Jesus is saying, Thomas... I know your struggle. I know what you need. I heard what you said, which was probably kind of freaking Thomas out at this point because he's like, okay, who told him? Who told Jesus what I said, really? But, but Jesus is, is saying, hey, I, I've heard you. He says, I know your struggle. So here, put your hand, put it in my side. It was such a personal offer to a man that was hurting. What was Thomas's response there? And the text actually doesn't say what he did. It doesn't say he did put his hands in the scars, put his hand, it doesn't say that he doesn't. Some, some people think he did. Um, and, and there's some pretty um, strict um, things that have fell with some denominations based on that. Uh, some people don't think he did. Uh, I tend to think that he didn't do that because honestly, I don't think he needed to at that point. I think he sees Jesus standing before him. Jesus just called him out and said, hey, I know where your struggle is. And he offered it to him. And Thomas's response is kind of the climax of the book of John. Jesus stands before him. He makes that offer. He sees his scars, and Thomas just says, my Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. The purpose of this gospel, as John stated himself, is to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believers would have life in him. You know, the thing I love about Thomas's response is he's not just saying, you are Lord, you are God. You know, the, the great thing about him saying you are God, at this point, Jesus had been referred to in the Gospels as Christ, as Savior, Emmanuel, Son of God. But this is Thomas saying, you are God, deity. And the great thing is Jesus doesn't correct him here. 
And I think that's one of the things that's really important for us. There's a lot of places in scripture where someone references Jesus, they call him by a certain name or they ascribe to him a certain title and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, no. And he deflects that, oftentimes kind of pointing to the father. And he had that opportunity here with Thomas when Thomas says, my Lord, my God, Jesus doesn't go, whoa, 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 no. He doesn't do that. My Lord, my God. Spurgeon pointed out a few things with that line, my Lord, my God, that I think are pretty cool. Um, He says it was a devout expression of holy wonder. That's such a, a cool idea, holy wonder. It was an expression of immeasurable delight. It indicates a complete change of mind. It was an enthusiastic profession of allegiance to Christ. It was a distinct and direct act of adoration and worship. And I love that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. We can focus in on Lord and and God, but he says, my Lord, my God. This is Thomas owning that. You know, I grew up in a church where didn't hear the gospel much. And <clears throat> for whatever reason, it was kind of a, a social thing for us. We went to church, had a lot of friends there, but just don't remember hearing the gospel a lot. But I had a Sunday school teacher <clears throat> in the sixth grade that was so faithful to present the gospel to us. She loved her sixth graders. And it was probably to the point, thinking back, where it didn't matter what the lesson was. It didn't have to have like a natural segue. It didn't have to, when it was a certain time in the class, she's like, all right, let me tell you about Jesus. What did Jesus do? She presented the gospel. And I remember vividly as a sixth grader coming home after church, getting on my knees next to my bed. And ultimately saying, my Lord, my God, I put my trust in him. I had heard of Jesus. I grew up in church. I've heard that Jesus is God, that concept. Like, yeah, I'm not going to argue. That makes sense. But at this point, I was able to say, my Lord, my God, you are mine. And here's why I think this hit me so much, because I think we live in a culture here in East Texas and kind of in the Bible Belt where we go to church because that's what you do. We live in East Texas. Of course you go to church. We live in Tyler. It's hard not to go to church. And but but why do we go to church? And, you know, we can sit here and we can listen and uh, we can be okay with the fact that Jesus is Lord and even the idea of Jesus is God. Like, we're not going to argue with that. We hope we don't have to teach on the Trinity, but we're, we're okay with that concept. Um, but as you sit here right now in your chair, are you able to say, my Lord, my God, as Thomas did? I think it's easy to kind of go through the motions and Maybe you even got drug here by somebody. And, um, this is the point where you're able to say, my Lord and my God. And it doesn't mean that we don't have any doubts. It just means that we believe that Jesus is my Lord and my God. 
You know, the gospel is powerful, but it's also very personal. And it's not personal like I need to keep this a secret. But thinking of it as us is true, but I think that kind of keeps us at a safe distance as well. Can we say, my Lord and my God? And a lot of times, you know, when we present the gospel, there's certain verses that we are kind of our go-to verses when you present the gospel, right? Whether it's with kids, whether it's adults or, you know, whoever. And when you hear these voices and you hear these verses in the context of my Lord and my God, I think it's really powerful. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, my God, for the way, 623 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of my God is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, my God, not by work so that no one can boast. It is the gift of my God. My Lord, my God. As you sit here this morning and you think about the week to come and we have a day set aside to give thanks, which hopefully isn't the only day that we're giving thanks. But as we look to that, I hope that we're at a point that we can really be thankful for this, not just thankful for the Dallas Cowboys, thankful for, you know, the... Our family, which is obviously, I mean, for me, it's one of the things I'm most thankful for in my life. I, I love that, you know, being Jenny's husband and, and the father of Hank Landry Tucker and Molly is one of the greatest things in the world. One of the privileges that I'm so thankful for. But even that pales in comparison for me to be able to say, my Lord and my God. I hope we're reminded of that during this Thanksgiving Well, then Jesus looks at Thomas in verse 28, and he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is another reason I think that um, Thomas didn't actually touch Jesus' scars. I, I think even this wording that Jesus says, Because you have seen me, have you believed? He doesn't say, Because you've touched me. He says, Because you have seen me. See, Thomas was chosen by Jesus to be a unique, authoritative witness of Christ's resurrection. But there's still kind of a rebuke there. It's like Jesus is standing there going, hey, Thomas, I appreciate your sincerity, but don't, don't be too proud of yourself. There were others that had not yet seen me and still believed in my resurrection. Jesus is saying those people are blessed. This is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of missionaries going out, telling people about Jesus who they haven't seen. They didn't see his resurrection. We did not see his resurrection. Yet we're able to believe. And Jesus says we're blessed because of that. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think at this point, Thomas was really on fire. 
he was ready to run through walls for Jesus. It's kind of like the big pregame speech before a football game, and they're kind of in the tunnel just getting everybody pumped up, and then they run onto the field ready to run through walls. I think that's where Thomas was. Um, you know, church tradition and history really has Thomas going as far east as India to, to spread the gospel, and that he was actually martyred in India. Jesus brought him so far away from his doubt that Thomas was ready, was ready and willing to give his life for Jesus. There's a few people from here, Chris Sherrod, Daniel David, and Acock actually went, were just in India. And so I was talking to Daniel about just how many connections in India right now you see with Thomas and that Thomas had an impact there. Um, and he was willing to go and impact because he believed so deeply now in who Jesus was. So outside of a couple epilogues that I'm sure Chris is going to talk about with Jesus and, and Peter and the other disciples in chapter 21, this is kind of a conclusion to John in some ways. Verse 30 and 31 say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's nothing in John about Christ's birth, nothing about his baptism, nothing about the selection of the apostles. And that's not really John's point here. John didn't set out to write a biography about Jesus. John wrote his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God so that we have that opportunity as we sit here. Can we say, my Lord, my God? This book really isn't about the signs. It's a book about Jesus. And those signs are there to help reveal Jesus to us. So as we close, what's the application here? Well, I think the first is kind of specific to this passage. And as Jesse comes up here, I want you to think about this. Is doubt something that is kind of derailing you? Does it move you to isolation or is it motivating you to know him more? And second, is my Lord and my God something you can confidently say? Like I said, it doesn't mean we know all the answers. It doesn't mean that we don't have any doubts anymore. It means that because of the cross, we understand that we are forgiven and we can have life in him. So this is your opportunity to respond. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your life, what the Spirit's laying on your heart. If you need to come up and pray as Jesse sings, man, feel the freedom to do that. Um, if this is a time where you really feel like the Spirit is saying, I, I need to put my trust in you for the first time, if you want to talk about that, man, come up. We'd love to talk with you about that. Um, if you've talked to the Welcome Home team and you've decided, man, we've been visiting and we really want to call South Spring our home, you want to join this dysfunctional family, as we like to say, then now's the time. Come up and we'd love to talk with you. But as Jesse sings, you respond as the Lord's leading. Let's pray. My Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the cross. And thank you for conquering death in the grave. I pray that the doubts we have will push us to know you more. And as we see you more clearly, we can respond as Thomas did and say, my Lord, my God.